Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast. My name is Dominic, and my co-host's name is Janice, and this is episode 25. On today's show, we will be talking to Father Jason Spadafore. Writing under the pen name Augustino Tamaturgo, Jason has been a student of Christian spirituality and magic for almost 30 years, specializing in theology and orthodox methods of manifestation. Jason was ordained a traditionalist Roman Catholic priest in 2002, where he served in the Latin Rite Catholic community, and in 2007, he was consecrated a bishop. After 13 years in the priesthood in 2015, Jason returned to the magical community because exoteric ministry just isn't his cup of tea. Jason now writes, teaches, and lectures on spirituality, magic, and manifestation within a Christian paradigm and is available for workshops, speaking engagements, and one-on-one coaching. His books and blog can be found online at thavmapub.com. That's T-H-A-V-M-A-P-U-B, thavmapub.com. And he can be reached at augustino at thavmapub.com. Father Jason was a lot of fun to talk to, and and he really does have an encyclopedic memory when it comes to uh, the topics we're going to be talking about. And he's really down to earth, and we feel like you guys are really going to get a lot out of this episode. Before we move into the episode, we'd just like to say, as always, thank you to our longtime patrons and our new patrons. You can support us for a dollar a month or a thousand dollars a month. Hey, whatever you want to do. We appreciate it, and it is helping us uh, upgrade things. As we've mentioned before, in addition to helping us on Patreon, uh, an even easier way to help is just to give us a review on on one of the many podcast platforms that you can find us, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Apparently, Spotify is a popular place people get podcasts. I don't think we're on there yet, so I have to, I have to look at that and work on that one. As always, this episode is dedicated to Hermes. And we dedicate any merits accumulated doing this work to all sentient beings for our mutual benefit. Welcome to the show. We are very pleased to have Father Jason Spadafore, a.k.a. Agostino Tamaturgo, here on the show. We've been wanting to have him on for quite a long time, and we're really looking forward to this. We actually just recorded, or we just almost did a podcast off the record, and so we figured it's probably time to hit the record button. Um, Welcome to the show, Father. Hey, it's good to be here, Dom. It's good to be here, Janice. And Janice, welcome to you as well. Oh, thank you very much for welcoming me to some place that I already am at. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> How do I respond to that? Uh, so, Father, we are going to cover a lot, I think, today. And we have a lot we want to talk to you about. 
So we'd love to talk about Catholicism, uh, the esoteric aspect and practice of Catholicism. And maybe we can start by uh, getting your definition and your thoughts on what is esoteric Catholicism and how, how it relates to other things such as magic. I think the easiest way to explain is by starting with the terms esoteric and exoteric, just for any listeners who may not be familiar with them. Okay, exoteric is probably best described as that which is without. In other words, if somebody's going to Mass, the, um, whether they're encountering the Latin language or the priest's vestments or the pews in the church or the words in a catechism or the words in a theology textbook, that's the exoteric, E-X-O-T-E-R-I-C. Now, esoteric, it refers to that which is within. It's often referred to as that which is hidden, but a thing isn't really hidden unless it's within. So that which is within, an inner teaching. Okay, this would be, in Catholicism, this would be more or less covered under the aspects of what's called mystical theology, the three stages of initiation that the soul goes through on its journey to the divine. The purgative life, the Illuminative life and the unitive life is what they're called. And so these are the stages of spirituality as seen in Catholicism and the various practices, the various phenomena associated with it. That could be associated with esoteric Catholicism. Okay, I'm, I'm kind of rushing through here. I'm oversimplifying because I want to get the basic concepts out there and we can build on them as we go. Sure. Now, how it plays in with magic, actually both interplay with magic. They both interplay like, for example, about a month ago, I did a class on, on the magical dynamics of the rosary. Actually, I have my rosary next to my keyboard right now. And if you pray, and if you get results from your prayer, you just did theurgic magic. Theurgy meaning God working. So you, you just, did, you just did, did a form of magic. No matter what some theologians may define magic as, no matter what some occultists may define magic as, it is the application, in my definition, is the application of your beliefs, applied theology, faith-seeking understanding, or the understanding of our faith, towards manifesting results on the physical plane. And so praying the rosary is a magical act when you pray for a concrete result, and a concrete result manifests. Praying the rosary to, praying the rosary for the sake of your spiritual advancement that is also a magical process because part of the magical slash theurgic process is the development of the soul, the development of the soul on its, on its path towards divinization or theosis, as it's also known. So how it plays in with magic is that the whole system is magical, both overtly and covertly. People have simply been taught, I don't know if, I don't know if a good word is indoctrinated or taught or brainwashed to see, to see the magic as not being there or to be in a state of denial about this being a whole magical system. That's pretty much where I am on that, on that right now. Like I said, we could probably develop this more as we go forward. Sure. So you would say, you would, you would argue that um, somebody's grandma praying is doing magic. I will actually go further than that. Okay. I'm going to go further than that to something we talked about before, before we started the interview. I would, say, I would definitely say that. I know a lot of people that would definitely say that. Some other books are next, next to my laptop. But I want to flash back to a Wiccan author, author, Silver Ravenwolf. In her book, Angels, Companions, and Magic, she makes a comment about Catholicism and the Rosary. 
And she claims that a friend says to her, are you really sure you want to go up against those old ladies in the back of the church at the rosaries? There's more magic with them than with many adepts. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, always stuck, that's always stuck with me. And in fact, it's also interesting because there are a lot of occult books that even, even the most anti-Catholic occult books I've seen will often acknowledge there is some kind of magic within Catholicism. So it's not just, it wouldn't just be me saying it. It wouldn't just be people saying it, their grandmother was praying saying it, but it would be a lot of occultists saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of these things in Catholicism that seem very, seem very mundane, probably because we have just been, like you mentioned, indoctrinated into thinking they were uh, maybe less mystical than they really are, such as candles, uh, you know, scapulars, which are basically like amulets. And there's a lot of petitioning that goes on. Um, it's it's funny, I just inherited a whole bunch of, of my grandmother's uh, religious uh, stuff, um, rosaries from the family and, and different things. And it's interesting, all the prayer cards, all the little chaplets, all the little uh, novenas, there's a lot of petitioning going on. And after reading, you know, being engrossed in things like the PGM and other things, and then going over to that, they're really not that different. I was, I was kind of shocked at how magical this stuff is. And, and there's kind of like this, this underground uh, grandma uh, world where they're, you know, sharing these prayer cards and passing along these chaplets and novenas. And it's, it's actually super interesting. Welcome to what could pass for a Catholic book of shadows. The, the collection of those prayer cards, collect, collect those novenas, put them into a scrapbook, and what do you end up with? Exactly. Yeah, so that's exactly, that's, that's very much there. There has always been, no, I don't want to, I want to word this more exactly, because outside of, say, the Anglosphere, outside the Anglosphere and maybe parts of Northern Europe, everywhere else in the world, Catholicism has always had a magical element to it. There's always been a magical practice. And it would probably freak out most people in the Anglosphere to encounter what Catholicism really looks like elsewhere, where you'd find things like, say, like, for example, like, for example, okay, the three of us, we're Italian. We're used to, to the Malocchio diagnosis where you have water and olive oil. Right. Okay, we're, we're used to that, but we don't see that as any different from, from just how Catholicism is practiced descriptively because it's just what we know. Or, say... Or say, and I believe Curandarismo has a um, a remedy for curses that involves using an egg, where you rub the egg over the back the back of the neck, and then you throw the egg in the toilet. I wouldn't recommend throwing it in the toilet because if the, if something negative is on the egg, it can hurt the plumbing. So I wouldn't recommend that. But the remedy still, that's just an example of how Catholicism is practiced in in, in a certain culture. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the kind of thing that we're, that we're used to. It's there. Or we could have, like you mentioned, the novenas. If you, if you want something really, really bad, go pray the 54-day novena to Our Lady of Pompeii. That's something that's, that's said very often. Or if you want help for, suppose you have a business startup, if you want help, go pray to St. Omobonus to help you with your business. Or if you want luck in, in say, gambling, go pray to St. Cayetan. If, if you want luck, if you want help with developing your, your clair, the, four, the five clairs, clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairgustance, clairalliance, and clairsentience, pray to St. Clair of Assisi. And so this is something that Catholicism has always had. 
even when the church has tried to forbid it, even when the church has tried to clamp down on it, which has been a, a lot more rare than most people w- would think. In fact, the, real, the really hard clampdown has only been within the past, what, 450 years since the 25th session of the Council of Trent. And even worse than that, with maybe within the past 200 since the Enlightenment. And so there is this magical subculture, but they're in such a state of denial because magic is calling on demons. Magic is, is playing with the devil. Magic is tacit invocation of bad things. They just don't use that word because they're in a state of denial about it. Yeah, and it's the case that Protestants make against Catholicism. That's kind of where they're coming from. Catholicism is is this magical system, and it's funny because they're they're right. I think they they are right, and I think Catholicism's problem is constantly trying to deny it. Yeah, just openly say yes, yes. We bring our God down to the physical plane every Sunday. Yes, we have processes that can help you. We have processes that can help you spiritually and physically. Exactly. And, I mean, this is how Catholicism should market itself, rather than the whole pay, pray, and obey shtick that came, that came over for, that came over with the Irish and Irish American devotional revolution from 1850 to 1875. That's what gave us the modern Catholicism that we have, and even it may have exacerbated the effects of Vatican II here in the states. I just want to touch on because you know a lot of this has to do with how we conceptualize things, how we how we put things into categories to define them. And I mean, this is especially, uh, in my opinion, this is very much due to post-enlightenment thought, um, this, this desire to uh, quantify and qualify everything and anything. Now, of course, uh, there is a precedent well before that, uh, but, you know, among many contemporaries who were not Christians, Jesus was considered to be a magician along the lines of Apollonius of Tiana, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, he performed, he, he moved in the same way that a magician of the time did. He was itinerant. He performed miracles. He, he cast out demons. He healed people. Um, these are all things that itinerant magicians and holy men in that area of the world at that time did. It was sort of the profile of of an enlightened sage, like you weren't an enlightened sage unless you did this stuff at that time. Um, so magic is bound up with the beginnings of Christianity, in my opinion. And in my opinion, any any Christian any Christianity that attempts to deny that is a is a really a false form of Christianity. Well, I think false for, false form might be a bit harsh. Maybe misguided might be a better word. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you're being more compassionate, I just have a hard time feeling that way about Protestantism, except for the mystical ones like that start to bring the magic back in. Uh, okay, okay, I've got a few comments on that. But I'm going to save that till later. Okay, okay, because there's there's a there's a right way and a wrong way to bring magic back into a tradition that's been despiritualized. And you're right, Protestantism has been despiritualized hardcore. Oh yeah, but when we talk about Christianity. And this is where I wish I'd actually gone through my Bible and um, bookmarked some chapters and verses to throw at you. But I'll point out a part in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus says, if you say to this mountain, move into the sea, and you believe that it has already happened, then the mountain will do so. If you believe you have obtained what you've prayed for, believe you've already obtained it, you'll get it. 
How is that not a magical process? In fact, open up any page of the Gospels at random. I dare you to find a page of the Gospels, turn it at random, where Jesus is not telling you how to do it, whether openly through like what I just mentioned, faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, which at the time was the smallest seed known. That's important to understand for understanding the magnitude of what he was saying, or where he says it in a half in a half-hidden way when he uses parables. To you I speak openly, and to the crowds I speak in parables. That seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not hear. And so, my my challenge anybody is to show me how how magic, or at least magical type thinking, is not at the very beginnings of Christianity. Even if the word itself, the words being magia and pharmakia in the original Greek, even if the words themselves were condemned. Pharmakia is the only word condemned in the New Testament itself, but as we get out to other first century documents contemporaneous with the Gospels, say the, the Didache and the, and the Epistle of Barnabas, what we have there is that Magia and Pharmakia are listed side by side. So there was already a condemnation of it, at the very least, at the very least as a presumably pagan practice, yet the idea of magical thinking, magical worldview, and manifesting things physically is already inherent in the be- very beginnings of the tradition. Nicely put. Yeah, definitely. Very well put. Thank you. The, the phrase, let those with eyes to see, let them see, um, it's right there in front of you. So I want to I wanna maybe talk a little bit more about making this work on a practical level. I mean, you're, you just mentioned mm-hmm. how you can open up any page of the scriptures and, and it's being explained to you how, how to do it. Um, I love how you, how you uh, articulated it, at least in uh, How to Pray the Rosary, one of your books, and I'm sure you've mentioned it elsewhere, mm-hmm. the idea of uh, how to make things work with magic, with prayer, and it's, it's called the sphere of availability. Would you mind um, talking about that and explaining that, that paradigm? Uh, absolutely. Okay, that, that is now just for, for background. Okay, for background, that's actually the number six of a system I, I use called the seven keys of effective prayer. I discussed this in my book, how, The Magic of Effective Prayer. Okay. Pretty easily named. <laughs> Okay, now the concept of the sphere of availability did not begin with me. It began in the late 50s, early 60s with an, with an occult author named Edward C. Peach, who wrote under the pseudonym of Ophiel, Ophiel being the Olympic planetary spirit of Mercury. I'm pretty sure your audience knows that already, but I, when I talk, I don't know, what, I don't know who, the, who or what the, uh, the individual listener might sure, know. Sure. Okay, so I always try to be comprehensive. Well, he wrote about this in a book called The Art and Practice of Creative Visualization. And what he says is that the sphere of availability, the principle says that you can obtain magically that which is, that which is inside of your ability to, to obtain it, not necessarily obtain it physically, but something that you're able to use, something that you're able to get your hands on, something that's actually available. An example of this, okay, one example of the sphere of availability that I tend to use, imagine somebody, they've, they grew up dirt poor, they have no education, maybe beyond second or third grade, they have, okay, they have no well-to-do relatives whatsoever, and they have no job prospects, 
and no social life. In other words, somebody who somebody whose prospects look horrible. Now, this person, say they pray or they do magic for a CEO level job at a Fortune 500 company. You with me so far? Yes. Okay, so they do magic for a CEO job at a Fortune 500 company and they get it. What's going to happen? This person does not understand business administration. They don't know how to run a business. In fact, I question whether some CEOs know how to run a business, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> okay, so, so what happens is the business ends up, will most likely end up being run into the ground unless they have some hidden natural talent that they never knew about. The business will be run into the ground. A Fortune 500 company, you've got thousands of employees. So you've got a lot of people that could end up going jobless, maybe homeless, families that could be suffering as a result of, the, of, of this person getting that CEO job. You have basically what could happen, whether economically, socially, environmentally, you name it, a lot of damage could happen because this person did magic and got a result for something they weren't qualified for. And look at how many people got hurt in the process. So the sphere of availability, I don't know whether that's a God-given law or just a natural law that popped up on its own, but... It limits people from going from being able to manifest something that's too far outside of their limitations. And I want to be clear when I say that. I'm not saying the magic has limitations. I'm saying that the individual practitioner has limitations. And part of understanding the sphere of availability, and though people have claimed to smash through it, I have never seen so much as one example where somebody has successfully smashed through the sphere. I've never seen it. So the way, so rather than deny it, the best way practically, in my mind, is to work with it. Robert Kiyosaki in his books talks about living within your means versus expanding your means. Expanding your sphere of availability is the exact same thing. You take stock of what's going on in your life. You take stock of your options. Take stock of your strength. Take stock of your weaknesses. And say, okay, how can I turn these weaknesses into strength? You say, Okay, I'm looking for a relationship because most magic happens for four reasons. Money, love, health, or protection. And knowledge is a fifth reason, but the other four seem to be much more um, overwhelming. Okay, so say, say you're lonely and you want a girlfriend. Okay, you're lonely, you want a significant other. Now, you could say, Archangel Aniel, Angel of Love, in the name of Yahweh, I call you into this pentagram and into the heart of my ideal lover to fill her mind with the image of Jason Spadafore's face, to fill her heart with the passion for Jason Spadafore, now and forever, amen. Okay, suppose you say something like that. You know what's going to happen? Sounds like you've done this before. <laughs> Actually, that's a, prayer that I, that's a prayer that I wrote when I was 16. <laughs> it's from a ritual called the Amame. Okay, sorry. Okay, no, you're fine, you're fine. <laughs> hey, good perception, by the way. Okay, so anyways, so you do that. What's going to happen? Crickets. But, and I've used this example before in classes and in um, books too. But in, if instead of just doing the magic straight up, do the magic to say, Lord God, please send your archangels, Aniel and Raphael to me to help me grow in my knowledge, to help me grow in my communication skills, and to help me grow in my friendship and social networks. So you develop that 
what happens is your sphere of availability is expanded because now you've got more friends. You've got more friends and you're learning how to interact with people. So as that goes, what's the next step? Please help me, please help me to be invited to more parties or to more social functions. Please help me to be more outgoing socially. So as you expand your social skills, your sphere of availability expands. As you expand your number of friends, your sphere of availability expands. And then eventually you could be at a party or you could be out with friends some night or something, or you could be at the supermarket. And you may find the partner that you're looking for that way. So what happened was you started with a tiny sphere of availability. Then you expanded your sphere by working on your skill sets, by working on your number of friends and all that. And then ultimately, your sphere of availability got to where you could find that partner you're looking for, whether magically or not. So that's how the sphere of availability works. It's not some mystical process. It's not some, it's not some hard limit that's out to get you. It's more like, like an elastic. It's an elastic type of rubber band that can expand or contract with your particular life circumstances and the decisions that you make in your life. Makes perfect sense. Very well put. Um, I mean, yeah, you're not going to find love no matter how much magic you do, I would argue, if you never leave your house. I mean, you have to help the magic help you. Um, so you've got to clear a path and, and, and create an environment where the magic can actually do what it does. Um, so nicely put. I think maybe we should start getting into maybe the tech of how how people or at least how in Catholicism, how some of these things are done. And I really wanted to talk about the rosary with you. I think it's a really powerful tool. You've written about it. You've spoken about it. You've done a class recently on it. Um, you've called it a complete system of theurgic magic. Um, you've called it a complete magical system and a, a system of magical training. Um, before we get into it, let's talk about the promises of the rosary, because there's a lot of them, and, and it's it's these are pretty good promises. So uh, maybe you should, you know, this, people out there should should uh, pay attention because this is uh, important stuff. So can you talk about the 15 promises before we get into the actual uh, rosary tech, so to speak? I absolutely can. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read them to you because I'm not going to lie, I'm terrible at memorizing lists. So... <laughs> Especially the longer the list, the less I'm going to memorize it. So I'm just going to read this to you. Yeah. Okay. Now I've now the list that I'm reading is in my new everyday prayer book, page 33. Okay. Starts with, whoever shall faithfully serve me by the recitation of the rosary shall receive signal graces. Now I'm going to expand on that a bit. A signal grace is a grace that it's a sign that you're receiving sanctifying grace or actual grace, namely divine help. Okay. Now, and so right there, she's all right there. Now, the, the, I should have given the history first. The Blessed Mother is said to have given these promises to Blessed Alan de la Roche. Okay. He, he was an, an ardent propagator of the rosary. So the first thing she says is, you get signal graces, meaning you're going to get things actually happening that will help you along your path, and that can mean signs and wonders. I'm definitely going to get into that later on. Yes, please. Okay, number two, 
I promise my special protection and the greatest graces to all those who shall recite the rosary. So the first one is signal graces. The second one, you get protection. Remember what I said about the four reasons people mostly perform magic, protection being one of them? Boom, right there. Number three, the rosary shall be a powerful armor against hell. It will destroy vice, decrease sin, and defeat heresies. Okay, so again, we have protection, not just protection of the body here, but protection of the mind, destroying vice, decreasing sin. So basically, helping to protect you against yourself, protect you against your bad habits, and maybe help you overcome them. Okay, the, we have that protection. Number four, it will cause virtue and good works to flourish. You see, it's the opposite of number three now. It will obtain for souls the abundant mercy of God. It will withdraw the heart of men from the love of the world and his vanities and will lift them to the desire of eternal things. Oh, that souls will sanctify themselves by this means. In other words, we have the rosary as a path of theosis right here. The soul which recommends itself to me by the recitation of the rosary shall not perish. That's number five. No commentary needed. Number six. Whoever shall recite the rosary devoutly, applying himself to the consideration of its sacred mysteries, shall never be conquered by misfortune. God will not chastise him in his justice. He shall not perish by an unprovided death. If he be just, he shall remain in the grace of God and become worthy of eternal life. Now, this is contingent on saying devoted to the rosary for the right reasons, not I'm praying this so that I can, I can get magical things to happen in my life. But you're praying it out of love of God, out of the love for the Blessed Mother, and because you're serious about theosis. So the sixth promise is very contingent on that. Number seven, whoever shall have a true devotion for the rosary shall not die without the sacraments of the church. Number eight, those who are faithful to recite the rosary shall have, during their life and at their death, the light of God and the plenitude of his graces. See where this plays right back into manifestation again? Sure. At the moment of death, they shall participate in the merits of the saints in paradise. That's a corollary to number nine. I shall deliver from purgatory those who have been devoted to the rosary. Number ten. The faithful children of the rosary shall merit a high degree of glory in heaven. Number 11. And I want to read this one slowly. You shall obtain all you ask of me by the recitation of the rosary. That's a mic drop moment right there. Number 12. All those who propagate the holy rosary shall be aided by me in their necessities. Number 13, I have obtained from my divine son that all the advocates of the rosary shall have for intercessors the entire celestial court during their life and at the hour of death. Number 14, all who recite the rosary are my sons and brothers of my only son, Jesus Christ. And number 15, devotion to my rosary is a great sign of predestination. Now, I'm going to defy you. I'm going to defy anybody listening to this who heard what I just read. How do these 15 promises not sound like the goal of every magician? You will be assisted in all your necessities. You will receive graces, grace which is a gift, grace which is the energy of God. 
grace, which is participation in the life of God. There are, these are all various definitions of grace that emphasize different aspects of it. You will be protected. You will be, you will be aided in the journey of theosis. How are those 15 promises not what every magician is asking for? Agreed. Agreed. And those are, yeah, those are some serious promises. I think it should make people maybe look twice at, at the rosary as, as a means to, to an end. But as you said, um, one of those, I, I don't remember which one, maybe number six, is that you have to, you have, to have a f- correct focus. You have to have a right view um, when you're doing it. Was that number six? What was number six? Was that um, above all, you have to keep God in mind, essentially? Yeah, whoever recites the rosary devoutly, applying themselves to the consideration of, of the sacred mystery, shall never be conquered by misfortune. God will not chastise him in justice, will not perish by unprovided death. If he be just, he shall remain in the grace of God and become worthy of eternal life. Yeah, yeah, you have, yes, that's exactly the one. You have to do it for the right reasons. But again, anybody who gets involved in the practice of magic, at least anybody who gets involved in the practice of old school magic, I'm not going to speak to the new school stuff, but the old school, they're told you have to do this for the right reasons. If you're doing it for the wrong reasons, you're going to fail. Janice, did you have something? Well, I was just going to add that uh, what you just read is very similar to like if you even look in the Greek magical papyri, the promises of certain rites that would be performed by magicians. Like It, it, it really is um, pretty much the same kind of uh, set of uh, attainments. Okay, now I'll tell you something that's very interesting, that by Blessed Alan de la Roche's time, the Greek magical papyri were mostly forgotten. So what I find very interesting is that there, if we take this with what you just said, what we're having is the utterance of a tradition that goes back long before the birth of Christ. It's the utterance of a tradition that was being preserved or maybe reiterated by way of a vision but one that nobody knew anything about by this point. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty impressive. Yeah, these are kind of universal universal things. Um, like you said, how, how is this not what all magicians are striving for? Well, yeah. It's like, I, I, may, I, may, I may occasionally cast some barbs at the um, Victorian Magical Revival, but the same reasons are in there too. Right. They, 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 were, they were striving for... They might call it something different, but they were effectively also striving for theosis, right? The grade structure and all that, Mm -hmm. it's in there. Okay. And um, the rosary itself is a a Marian devotional. Um, Can you maybe talk about, I I find this fascinating, the dynamics and the mechanics of going to Mary to intercede on on your behalf, the logic behind that, um, the gatekeeper quality. Ah, you've been reading my Facebook post, haven't you? Probably, but I've, I've heard you. I've heard you speak about it, and it's just fascinating. Okay, it's actually kind of a, um, a thing that came that came to me recently. But then looking looking over looking over the older documents, looking over the um, even the medieval exorcism manuals, which is pretty much the source for where a lot of the grimoire materials came from. Okay, even lo- looking over all this, you always have the name of Mary is mentioned. And in one, in Girolamo Mengi's Flagellum Diaboli, no, Flagellum Demonis, my bad, uh, the, the Scourge of Demons. Okay, in one of his exorcisms, he uses the name of the Blessed Mother along, right alongside the barbarous names you see in the grimoires as names of power. So you have Agala, you have Tetragrammaton, you have your usual names 
which he devotes time to explaining in one of his prefaces. And then you have something like, well, like 52 different names of Mary used as words of power. And looking through this, looking at that, most of, outside of the, um, outside the Vedus Gelasianum tradition, all exorcism texts involve Mary and invocation. And then I look at my own, my own magical work. I have received better results when I have invoked her than when I have not. I know this is getting rambly, but I'm about to get to the point. And here's what's occurred to me. Peter may have the keys, but Mary is the one who has control of the door from the other side. Think of it this way. You have the key to the door of my house. Is that key going to do you any good if I have a bunch of furniture at the other side of the door? Well, Mary is the one who could put the furniture at the other side of the door. She's the one, she's the one who can open or, open or close the door. And generally speaking, she's really, she's really benevolent, so she tends to open the door. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic. It doesn't matter if you're Protestant. It doesn't matter if you're Mormon. It doesn't matter if you're, it doesn't matter if you're Wiccan, which leads to some misconceptions of the whole Mary as goddess thing. But it doesn't really matter if you ask her, She's more likely to open the door than not, provided that what you're asking for is not truly harmful. So that's, that's, that's where I've gotten to Mary as gatekeeper. Well, and I also, I love the, the idea of kind of this loophole where Jesus may not necessarily uh, say yes to what you're asking, but if you ask Mary, Jesus is obligated by the Ten Commandments to listen to his mother. Uh, yes, I think I first read that in St. Louis de Montfort's Secret of the Rosary. Yeah, and it's just an interesting angle. Yeah, but you see, that that's one of the things about a lawful good alignment is that you pledge yourself to the law, so you put yourself in a position where you have to follow it. <laughs> I love the Dungeons and Dragons reference. Uh, let's, most occultists are gamers, so I doubt, that any, I doubt that anybody listening to this wouldn't understand. True. I defy you to prove me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway... Anyway, more seriously, so what, what, ha what, happen what happens is God, God created the law of nature and of supernature and all that and prefers to work within the laws. That's why most prayer also involves you having to take some action in order to make it work. As St. Augustine and St. Ignatius have both been quoted, we pray like it depends on God and work like it depends on us. So within those laws, God basically bound himself by those laws and this includes God the Son binding himself by the same laws. So that's where the whole Jesus has to listen to Mary comes from. Very, very interesting. So um, let's, get, let's get more into the practice of the rosary. Can you maybe break it down for those that may not be familiar with it or those that haven't dealt with it in a long time? Just, just keep it simple, what it is and how to do it, and then we can maybe talk about your expanded uh, methodology. Okay, actually, I'm trying to untangle my rosary right now. <laughs> I've, I've, got one, I've got one of the really big ones. I bought it for my, as a present to myself for my priestly ordination back in 02. But the problem with the really big ones is that they tangle more easily. Yeah. Go figure. Okay, I've got it in my hand because it's easier, to, it's easier to explain that way. Okay, long story short, the rosary involves about, it, it involves like three prayers repeatedly. The Our Father, the Hail Mary, and the um, and the Glory be to the Father. Now, there's an extra prayer, the Fatima prayer there, that's optional. 
Okay, so using it, you're basically repeating those prayers over and over with the Apostles' Creed at the beginning and the, um, and the Hail Holy Queen at the end. Okay, that, that's the super, super oversimplified version. But the meat of the rosary, it isn't really the prayers. It isn't really the prayers, it's the mysteries. Traditionally, there are 15 mysteries. They're broken into three different sets, the joyful mysteries, the sorrowful mysteries, and the glorious mysteries that involve different stages of the life of Jesus and Mary. In 2002, John Paul II, he added a, um, another set to be prayed optionally called the Luminous Mysteries, but they don't really fit in that well with any of the balances that the rosary traditionally has. That's a, I've got a blog post on that. I'll send that to you if you want to put a link in the description. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so meditating on the three sets of mysteries. Okay, they each apply to one's to one particular, I'm going to say, grade of the spiritual life in Catholic mysticism. The joyful mysteries apply to the illuminative life, where the soul has purged out, purged out, sin, purged out sin and overcome what's called the predominant fault, or what Eliphas Levy even calls the ruling defect, because he was coming from, from, from the same playbook that Catholic mysticism is at that point, when he wrote Dogma and Ritual. And so what happens there, and you're trying to fill the soul with virtues. That's what you're seeking to do in the joyful mysteries. The sorrowful mysteries, they interplay with the purgative life, where you're seeking to rem remove your vices. You're seeking to overcome your predominant faults and your various other faults. The glorious mysteries, this is from the resurrection up to Mary's coronation in heaven. This focuses on the unitive life, where you've overcome your baser nature. Your higher nature has been filled, and it's more in control. And now you're seeking to union with the Godhead. And so that's the basics of it. And each of the 15 mysteries, on a practical note, each of the 15 mysteries, they do so associate with various intentions. Like, for example, now I've got this on page 106 of How to Pray the Rosary and Get Results. It's Appendix C. But if you focus on the first joyful mystery, the Annunciation, some of the intentions associated with it are learning the virtue of humility discerning our strengths and shortcomings, finding ways towards new beginnings, and speeding our intentions into manifestation. Because the Annunciation was the beginning of the road to Jesus manifesting on the physical plane. Right, the visitation is associated with works of love and charity. The nativity is associated with detachment without falling into derangement, hastening physical manifestation of necessities, sustaining one's current physical condition, and seeing what needs to be done to get out of unfavorable situations. And each of the 15 mysteries has a set of intentions behind it. That's pretty much the big picture view of what the rosary does and how the tech works. A smaller picture view would be that as we focus on the mysteries, we're teaching ourselves visualization. In fact, it helps to have a picture of each mystery in front of us. It helps in order to get the image in our minds. And then maybe about a few months later, after a few months of doing this, take the image away and we just make the image in our minds. It helps with visualization. It helps with focus as we're focusing on the intentions. It helps with, it can help with vocal modulation as we, we can modulate our voices during the prayers. And it helps us, it actually helps us to, de to develop an inner state, an inner calm and an inner peace, the inner state from which everything else flows. And so, it really gives, it gives us a lot of benefits that are not talked about in standard prayer books. 
I would say those benefits can only be encountered by experiencing them. And so that's, that's the kind of basic surface level practice of the rosary. And I would, I would probably recommend that if anyone wants to go deeper using your methodology, that they, they first get very comfortable with just do, praying the rosary, uh, quote unquote, normally. Um, and then, so now let's maybe move into how you uh, go a little bit deeper mm-hmm. and make it a little bit more magical um, and practical for uh, achieving certain uh, outcomes. So there's there's the the second method of doing the rosary where you add a little bit more in to each uh, prayer. And then there's your expanded method, which builds on that even more. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Well, the second method and the expanded method are more or less one of the same. The only difference is maybe one of degree. Okay. Now, what led up to the expanded method was that, okay, that was that St. Louis de Montfort, he gives an, an he, he gives one method of praying the rosary where inside of each of the Hail Marys, you give a mention of the mystery. Actually, I've got my copy of his book right here. I'm going to read this to you exactly. Okay, for example, now what you do is during the Hail Mary, after the word Jesus, you add a word or a phrase. For example, in the Annunciation, it would be, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Well, what he says is, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus incarnate. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. At the, in the second joyful mystery, the visitation, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus sanctifying, and so on and so on. Until you get to the last glorious mystery, the coronation, Jesus crowning thee. Now, what happened was, in Germany, this was incorporated, because you'll find this in German catechisms. It was incorporated. Yeah, it was incorporated the way the rosary was said there. I actually have a list of exactly how they said it. Okay. Well, for example, in, um, in the German method, and this is in Father Joseph de Harby's A Full Catechism of the Catholic Religion. Now, for, for historical record, this is the, these are the catechisms, de Harby's full catechism, his large catechism is a small, small catechism. These are the catechisms that predated the Baltimore Catechism. Now, what he said was, it would be, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, whom thou, O virgin, didst conceive of the Holy Ghost. So that was the German method. Now, I did something slightly independently in 1998. This is where the expanded method came from. I was, I was praying the rosary. There's a spring of 98, and incorporating these methods... I came up with, now I pray in Latin, was Ave Maria, gratia plena Dominus Tecum, benedicta tua Maria Busa, benedictus fructus ventris tui Jesus. Quenunciatus esti Archangelo Gabrieli, who was announced to thee, Jesus who was announced to thee by the Archangel Gabriel. Sancta Maria, Matri Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus nunc et normatis nostre, amen. And so for each of the 15 mysteries, I, I composed, an in, an, I call it an insert that was placed inside of the Hail Mary to mention, to mention each mystery. So that's where the expanded method comes from. It's building on these methods that were listed before. So that's the expanded method. And while doing this, mentally, what I do is I focus on the mystery, and I focus on the spiritual fruit of the mystery, because each mystery has a spiritual fruit, which is a kind of virtue. The first joyful mystery, the spiritual fruit is humility. The second joyful mystery, it's charity. 
The third joyful mystery is detachment to the things of the world, to the things of the world and their conditions, and so on and so on. Now, to use it magically, to use this magically, it's just like a slight alteration. You would say, okay, instead of mentioning the mystery during the Hail Mary, what you would say is your intention to use the example of to use the example of finding a significant other. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, who has brought a new love into my life. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And while you're praying the rosary, what you're doing is you're visualizing the result as though it had already come to pass. You're visualizing who this perfect person might be. Not a specific person. You're not trying to force anybody's will. But whoever this person, just visualize who this per person might be like. Whoever your type is would be a good way to put it. You visualize them and you, you visualize yourself maybe going on a date with them, maybe taking a walk on the beach with them, something like that. So that's how it's, that's how it's used magically. And you do this for all, all, all five decades, all five sets of 10 Hail Marys on, on, on the rosary for that day. And you do this repeatedly. That's the basic magical use for the rosary right there. It's once you've, gained, once you've gained the training in visualization, once you've gained the training in meditation, and once you've ga gained all the training that the rosary has to offer, that's when you jump into it magically. Another method that I would recommend doing beforehand is pathworking the most relevant mystery. In the case of finding a significant other, i.e. e., love, you'd, you'd pathwork the second joyful mystery, which is the visitation. When Mary's pregnant with Jesus, and she goes and visits Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, and helps Elizabeth through her pregnancy. Okay, this is just like pathworking was traditionally defined as a guided meditation on any sephirah or path of the tree of life. Then it later became, came to be defined as any guided meditation. So what you do here is you're, me you're meditating on that mystery. Sit, breathe, relax, do your, do your usual meditative exercises. And in your mind's eye, you visualize yourself in the scene of the mystery. You can visualize yourself maybe being a bystander, maybe somebody eavesdropping on Mary coming up to Elizabeth. And, and Elizabeth saying, blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And Mary singing the Magnificat. Maybe later on, you can visualize yourself going up to them and talking to them, learning what they have to teach you. What the path working does, and it is going to feel like it's all in your head, at, at least until you get used to the technique. But what the path working does is it stirs up in your subconscious and it stirs up some more interaction with the energies and the influences that can help manifest what your intentions are. And so, path working plus the expanded magical method are probably amongst the best ways to weaponize your rosary for magical use. It's very interesting. Um, and, and the path working is almost like shamanic uh, journeying from a, a kind of a Christian perspective. Um, I've, I've, ex I've experimented with this a little bit, and I've found it to be very useful. Um, I, I like it. I've, I'm pretty early in my practice of it as you lay it out, but um, I'm really liking it so far. Uh, I, th I think it is it's definitely useful. And I love how it's all very uh, interchangeable and modular, some of these uh, quote-unquote technologies. Um, so, and there's different types of rosaries. Mm -hmm. So you can 
do a rosary, but then you can add it to a novena, um, add candles, um, or you can go a different route and, and use a chaplet to a certain saint and do it that way and then add that maybe to a novena or there's, there's a lot of different options, which is really, really uh, interesting. The, this, this is quite true. And actually now for different types of rosaries, I'm going to recommend, I'm going to recommend do a Google search. There is a document out there by her name is Cindy Smith and it's called, I think it's called rosaries of all kinds. Okay. Actually what I'll do is I'll send, I'll send you a link after we're done. And what she does is she catalogs so many different kinds of rosaries, and not all of them are Marian. Right. Some are Christological. Some are dedicated to other saints. Some people would call these chaplets instead of rosaries. But there's so much out there that I would encourage people to become more, more familiar with the different types and varieties and options that they have. Yeah, there's a lot of variety. Um, I, I was surprised. Like I said, when I got this stash of, of my grandmother's, essentially her spell book, <laughs> Um, there are these chaplets. I'm like, what, what are these things? And then, uh, just reading about them, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, the modular and, and flexible, flexible aspect that, that these things have. Um, and it's, it's all very acceptable in Catholicism. It's, it's not something that's, um, I mean, it may be looked down upon in some circles, but it's all very, uh, out there and accepted as normal. Yeah. You know, more to the point, it's accepted in old school Catholicism because he, he, here's, here's, here's what happened. Actually, we're Gen Xers, so we, we all experienced it. What happened was after Vatican II happened, when the, um, when the modernist faction took control, that's the one thing that they wanted to run away from the most. And they wanted to stigmatize the most. That's why you find things like I've seen seminary textbooks from the, from the period say that private devotion is useless. The only the only devotional life that's useful is the one that's linked to social justice. Ouch. You'll hear things like, like that. Yeah, the, like private devotion was discouraged. Praying the rosary was discouraged. Praying novenas was very discouraged, a superstition. And this is why I think a lot of, a lot of Gen Xers, it's, if they went to parochial schools and if they had above average intelligence, they turned pagan. Because mm-hmm. like the Catholic school system was the biggest manufacturer of neo-pagans in the period. Yeah, I'm getting away from myself a bit, but within old school Catholicism, it was fine. It was either encouraged or it was ignored. It was never discouraged unless somebody took it too far. Like, for example, there's a, there's a position known as Fatimism, which places more emphasis on apparitions of the Blessed Mother or apparitions of Jesus than, they do, than, than it does on apostolic teaching and, and the actual faith. Okay, that, that's taking it too far, but for the most part, was pretty flexible with, with, within the boundaries. Janice, I don't want to dominate the whole conversation. Um, I'm sure you have something to add. Um, no, this is fascinating to me. I would like to steer it um, a little bit more in the direction of esotericism now um, mm-hmm. and get into maybe some of the... I would like to discuss... Could you define for people the what... What, in your opinion, characterizes esoteric Catholicism or even esoteric Christianity um, as opposed to its exoteric counterpart? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, the, well, the okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna start from the general and work my way to the specific. I think that might be the best way to tackle this. Okay. 
Start, starting, from, starting from the general, we have the concept of esoteric Christianity, which personally, I'm not a fan of what is called esoteric Christianity in the modern period. Okay, reason being, modern-day esoteric Christianity, it was, very, it, was very influenced by, it was very influenced by people who, they had nothing to do with actual Christian theology. They were very much into Jesus' light, and then they basically tattooed him with practices and ideas that they cherry-picked from the Vedic religions, namely Hinduism and Mahayana Buddhism. So esoteric Christianity, as is practiced today, it's very stamped by that. Or you'll have like the ideas of, of visionaries, namely Rudolf Steiner, just grafted on to whatever person, whatever somebody's opinion of Jesus might happen to be. So there's no interaction with the with the tradition. There's no interaction with the theology. There is no real interaction with actual historical Christianity or the actual Jesus of the Gospels. Now. Before I go a little bit further into esoteric Catholicism, I would say what esoteric Christianity should be. We go into Valentin Tomberg in his Meditations on the Tarot. When he talks about the key number one, the magician, he refers to the Church of Peter as the exoteric church and the Church of John, the esoteric church. And he says that one is not superior to the other, and he kind of implies that one cannot survive without the other, but they're both needed. My own analogy is that the body needs the heart to survive. The heart needs the body to survive. And so they have, so to be balanced, to be proper, they have to be intertwined. Now, esoteric Catholicism, which interestingly enough is taught at the seminary level, is known as mystical theology, to use that term that I referred to earlier. So esoteric Catholicism if you want that, go get a mystical theology textbook. We could talk Arthur Devine's Manual of Mystical Theology. We could talk Reginald Garrigou Lagrange's Three Ages of the Interior Life, which, which gives the technology from which all of the great mystical saints have worked. And so it's there, and the process is the process of it's the process of cleansing the soul of fault, cleansing the soul of sinful inclinations, the mind, the soul, and the body. And then once you've cleansed it, particularly of a thing called the predominant fault, which is the one thing that we tend towards most. For some people, it could be violence. For some people, it could be sex. For some people, it could be jealousy. For some people, it could be egotism. But to cleanse that soul of the predominant fault, and as a magician, it's important to work on the predominant fault because working, working in the spirit model, and Catholicism has a very radical belief in the spirit model. The psychological model is completely rejected. So working in the spirit model, if you have a fault that controls you, if you have a habit or vice that controls you, you better believe that some entity sooner or later is going to use that against you, particularly if you were out there actively calling on entities and actively attempting to have a relationship with them. So the first thing is overcoming the predominant fault, learning the discernment of spirits, learning how to purge the soul of vices learning and bad habits. And then, that's the purgative life. The illuminative life is now that the soul has been emptied of the bad, you want to fill it with good. You want to grow in virtue, especially charity. Once, once that second grade, the illuminative life has been passed, you enter the unitive life. The unitive life, and I refer to these as initiations, but these are not initiations somebody can give you. That's baptism, confirmation, and ordination. 
These are initiations that, that, you, that you earn based on your own spiritual progress. And nobody knows where you are but you and God. The unit of life is once you have mastered the previous two grades, you are entering into a much more com full communion with God day to day. You become a channel, as it were. You become a channel of divine grace. You become a channel of the divine in your day-to-day -day life, your speech, your actions, even so much as cooking your dinner. And so that would be an explanation of the overview of esoteric Catholicism as it's actually taught. There's, there are a lot of things that fill into the cracks, such as signs, wonders, visions, apparitions. They're accounted for, but they're either side effects of walking on the path or they are things that may happen at random to somebody who might have a gift, or things that happen at random to somebody who doesn't have a gift. And so that's probably a good description of esoteric Catholicism. And it, it really is the Church of John in union with the Church of Peter, where the theology is meant as like signposts on the road to keep you from going too far off the mark. Like, for example, you're discerning spirits, and you have a, you're talking to a spirit that tells you, go and kill your family. Well, you know that that's not something that a spirit sent by God is going to tell you. So that's where the theology and, and the morality serves as a side post to keep you from going too far. Your last statement kind of begs the question and immediately brought to mind Abraham and Isaac. Yes. Um, how, does, how do you explain that situation? Okay, the way I explain that situation, on the one hand, and I know a lot of my friends are going to rake me over the coals for this, but on the one hand, I do tend towards the higher, the higher critical position that a lot of this were folk tales that were passed down orally until they were actually put into written form eventually. But the other thing, and this is something, this is something I've kind of talked about, but I've never talked about the approach of this story, is that my best, friend, my best friend's father is Jewish. Okay, her, her mother isn't Jewish, so she's not considered a Jew. A Jew. But, and one thing that, working in his business for seven years, I got to learn, I got to learn a lot, because religion and politics were talked about openly there. I got to learn a lot about Judaism between, between talking to him and my mentor in Kabbalah when I was studying in the 90s. And one thing I, that I learned was that story, now there's no official, uh, Judaism does not have official doctrine the way Christianity does. It's a religion of argumentation and debate. That's my preface. But one position that I learned there is that God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac for the sake that Abraham would actually ask why and try to initiate a dialogue with him, not so that he would just go and blindly obey. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to add to that. I think one of the issues with Christian interpretation of that is that Christianity has always had a thing about about doctrine and dogma, having an official doctrine that everybody, that all must agree with in order to be true Christians rather than have an incomplete gospel or something. Latitudinarianism, mm -hmm. it, it, latitudinarianism is a byproduct of the Anglosphere. It's a byproduct of the British Enlightenment. That's how recent it is. Prior to that, Christianity was very much, believe what I believe or you're some kind of a heretic. So I, I really think that's why the Christian interpretation of obedience Got, got, it, got into the text, rather than the idea that maybe God was asking us that Abraham would open a dialogue. Okay, interesting. I like that. <clears throat> um, shifting gears slightly, can we, I mean, I, I would love to talk about signs and wonders too. I'm not sure how to fit it in. But um, if we can, maybe if you can talk about um, the communion of saints and working with ancestors 
and how that looks from your perspective. Okay, the communion of saints, that's act, okay. I'm gonna, I can go over that one really quickly. The communion of saints basically is part of something called the tripartite church or the threefold church. You'll notice that the number three picks up a lot in, in, within Christianity in general and Catholicism in particular. Sure. Okay, what that refers to is the church militant here on earth because the church has three parts. There's the church militant, that's us here on earth, all, ba all baptized Catholics who are out there fighting the good fight, militant because we're fighting off we're fighting off sin, temptation, the devil, and what have you. Okay, the church triumphant is in heaven. These are the people who have fought the good fight. Now they've won. And now they look back to those on earth where they've been, and they help them by means of their prayers or their advocacy and whatever other capacity God may allow. The third part of the church is the church suffering. These are the poor souls in purgatory. They fought the fight. For the most part, they've won. Actually, as purgatory was ascribed to me when I was five years old, purgatory is for people who weren't good enough to go to heaven, but they're not bad enough to go to hell. So what God does is he puts them in purgatory so they can be, so they can be cleaned because the book of Apocalypse says there is nothing impure can enter into heaven. So they can be cleaned, they can be made pure. So it's an example of God's mercy. And then they go straight to heaven after purgatory. And so that's how it was described to me. So the church suffering, they're basically in this giant washing machine called purgatory, which is not a place, it's a state of being. So a soul in, pur in purgatory, in a state of purgatory, could be a soul that's haunting a house here on earth for all we know. Could be a soul that is assigned to be around their family. And this plays into the next thing you, you were asking me about. And so... What the souls in purgatory do, they are prayed for and they are assisted by those of us on earth and by those in heaven by way of prayer, indulgences, pious works, and they are able to pray for and assist, though they cannot help themselves, they are able to help those of us here on earth. So we're going to move from the communion of saints now to which you're asked about ancestors. My honest belief is that the vast majority of people go to purgatory. This plays into questions of baptism of blood, baptism of desire. This plays into questions of mortal sin versus venial sin, and also plays into questions of vincible versus invincible ignorance. Okay, it's a pretty big playing field that would take that would actually take me several hours to break this down to anywhere near under to be anywhere near understandable. So I'm just going to skip right to the conclusion for now. We can get into the big all the explanations later that I honestly believe that the majority of people go to purgatory after they die. Okay, I, honest, I honestly believe that. The reason being that the laws of God are written on the hearts of men. In, in Romans 2.11, 2, 11 to 15, Paul talks about how, the, how those people, okay, the Gentiles who do not have the law, yet do the law of God on their, as written on their hearts. In other words, if they do the best they can with what they have, they too can be saved according to the gospel that Paul was preaching. That's a very often overlooked part of the, of the Scripture when we're talking about Christianity and Christians in general. So if you do the best you can with what you have, you have a shot. At the very least, baptism of desire. And because 2 Peter 5.8, God is not willing that any should perish, 
I'm inclined to believe most people go to purgatory. This includes our ancestors. This includes our ancestors. This includes friends. This includes people we may have known or people that may have, an inter- may have taken an interest in us from across the other side of the veil, what have you. So I really think that that's the place where most of our ancestors are. That's the place where most of our friends may be. That's the place where the majority of people can be. So in work involving the ancestors, we are effectively reaching, we are effectively reaching out to the church suffering. That's maybe 90% of the time. Again, I'm speculating. I'm not stating this as a fact. It's just speculation that I tend to believe. So that's how it really fits in with my paradigm. As far as working with the ancestors, it's really a question of how close were you to them? Like, for example, my father and I didn't get along too well when I was younger. We got close towards the end of his life. I, I know that if I am in, in meditation, if I think his name, he tends to show up. Now, let's say another ancestor, like, for example, I did not get along with my maternal grandmother at all. Well, she's not very inclined, she's not very inclined to talk to me. I've not asked her for any kind of help. She only died last August, but she's not very inclined to talk to me. She's not inclined to have anything to do with me because we didn't get along in life. There's also the question of, do you regulate your behavior to be somebody that your ancestors would be proud of? Or are you a disgrazia to your family? So there's also that question. So it's not just the question of purgatory. It's not just the question of the communion of saints. It's the question of what is your personal relationship with, the, with those who have gone before you, especially if you have blood relation, especially if they have a concept of honore, of honor, and a concept of reputation. Because if you sully their reputation here in life, why would they want anything to do with you? Why would they not want to disown you just like they would have in life? And so there's a lot more that goes into the question of the ancestors than a lot of people who talk about it nowadays seem to realize or seem to want to realize. Interesting. Um, From your specific perspective, what about working with ancestors whom you've never met? Is that a possibility? I absolutely think it's a possibility. I think it's a possibility. I think it involves... And this is just me from my very few attempts at it. Okay, because I, I don't do a whole lot with the ancestors. I just do what I can not to disgrace them. I don't do a lot consciously. You've got to start by building up a relationship. It's not like, hey, great grandma, I'm related to you. Give me free stuff. If you do that, <laughs> you're going to get laughed at. It doesn't work that way. It could be more something like, hey, great-grandma, or hey, great-great-grandma, or granddad, or insert ancestor name here. I never, got, I never got to know you. I never got to know you in life. You passed away long before I was born. I would like to get to know you. I would like to get to know you. I'd like to get to know your story. I'd like to form a relationship with you. And this is just like advice I give when contacting the saints. If you go in the gate, Asking somebody, for, asking somebody for stuff, you have a much lower chance of getting it because you're going to insult the person. 
I was like, come on, we all know people that they only come around when they want something. What is our opinion of such people? Exactly. Yeah. And so become friends first. Form a relationship. If they give you advice, provided that you've tested the spirits first, if they give you advice, listen to the advice, act on it, and modulate your behavior as such that they would be proud of you. Don't be somebody who's going to disgrace them. Like if you've got an ancestor, you never met them before, but if you find out that they were very clean cut and they, and they, would, frown, and they would frown on you going out there with purple hair and um, purple hair and stuff like that, then get rid of the purple hair. You, you see what I'm saying? It's not obedience, but it's more of a, more of a, a synergy. Mm-hmm. And by them helping you, they're, they're, that's how they are able to help themselves considering their situation in purgatory. Did I hear that right? Uh, yes, provided that the ancestor is in purgatory. Not all go to purgatory. Okay. I mean, right, St. Francis Borgia, for example. Okay, he, he was really, he's a saint. But he had eight children. He was, he was married before his wife died, and then he, he went to the priesthood after his wife died. But he had eight children. So one of his descendants could look at him as an ancestor. This is an ancestor who did not go to purgatory, but straight to heaven. So I'm using him as an example because I was reading up about him yesterday. So that's, that's one example. Not all ancestors are in purgatory. For all we know, some ancestors might be in hell, whatever state the hell might happen to be. Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not they can help you, I don't know. That's an, that is a complete I don't know. I don't have an answer. I have received private revelation. That's the theological term for unverified personal gnosis. Mm-hmm. I have received private revelation that hell exists and that it's, like, it's described as best as a numbness. It's a a numbness like being awake and asleep and bored all at the same time for eternity, and it's a result of choices that you made, not because God's out to get you or anything. In fact, in theology, the imagery of fire and all that is described in theological terms. It's not necessarily a literal fire. So the ideas of numbness, the ideas like one exorcism that Father Gabriel Amort once did, where the Spirit said the hell is people turned in on themselves with regret. Or even the idea in the second Bill and Ted movie, where hell is your your personal hell, where you're living over, where you're living over some some bad times in your life or things that you regret. These are all valid paradigms. But I don't know if an ancestor in hell could help you. I don't know if an ancestor in hell can hear you or have anything to do do with you, or if God would let that happen or anything. So I'm not really able to speak to that in any, in any degree of useful detail. Okay, okay. And side note, I didn't know there was a second Bill and Ted movie. Yeah, Bill and Ted's Bogus <laughs> Journey. <laughs> Is that a new one? or 1991. Oh, never mind. Yeah, now they're talking about a third movie. That's, I don't okay, know that's what I thought. That. That's <laughs> what I thought. Okay, sidebar. Janice, yeah. are you still alive? Yeah, I'm here. So what would you say is um, prohibited, even with an esoteric... Catholicism. What 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 would be practices that, if you're going to be practicing esoteric Catholicism and the magic of Catholicism, what would be the boundaries of that? Because most people who identify with the practice of magic, either, well, sort of. Uh, I would I would even venture to say, 
paradoxically um, have a hypertrophied social conscience and motivation to defend what they see as injustice. But at the same time, many of these same people are completely comfortable with cursing, hexing, working with demons, uh, you know, just really anything that would traditionally be considered unwise and dangerous from a religious perspective. Um, so it's like there's this sort of skewed conscience in what magic has become in the internet age. What would you say are the limitations for a magician working within a traditional religion? Okay, well, on the one hand, I, I think that a lot of the things that you've noticed are a result of really bad catechism over the past 50 years. And Catholics not being taught Catholicism as children like they should be. Okay, the actual limitations would be the actual limitations of moral theology. For example, you mentioned cursing and hexing and all that. Okay, one limitation is, one limitation on what you can and can't do with magic is, if it, if it is a sin for you to do it non-magically, then it is also a sin for you to do it magically. So the moral teaching exoterically is the same moral, te moral teaching esoterically. The one difference would be that there are things that are sinful exoteric, that are considered sinful exoterically that make no sense. But on an esoteric level, they make perfect sense. One example Okay, that blog post I recently wrote that I'm kind of embarrassed by, well, one example would be in there. Excess sexual license. What, you end, what ends up happening with excess sexual license is, is a de, it's a decrease in energy. Is a, it, ends up, it can end up with a decrease in focus. There is a condition called hypofrontality where the reward, where the reward delay centers in the brain get wired really funny. It makes it harder to focus. It makes it harder to accomplish things. It makes it harder to get things done. And so there are, there are things that can interfere with, with the teaching, that can interfere with your effectiveness within your esotericism or with your magic. There are also things such as, let's see, I mentioned cursing and hexing. Well, if you're putting a death curse on somebody, it's basically the same as going out with a tire iron and smacking them over the head and cracking their skull. So obviously that's going to be sinful. Just because you're asking spirits to do it for you does not make it an excuse. Or things such as, let's talk, let's talk about jealousy or theft or lying. Let's talk, let's talk about blasphemy. Let's talk about pretty much, again, all the things that are in the moral teaching they apply to the magician just as much as they apply to the person in the pews. So I would say that right there is a good summary of the limitations. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's that. Thank you for saying that because I, I don't. A lot of people don't seem to uh, think. I mean, it appears that malicious uh, magic against another. They they don't seem to feel like that is as bad of a deal or uh, there's a disconnect for sure. And I'm not sure why. I wonder if the disconnect might be that they're not physically doing it. They're not actually feeling or seeing it happen. So to them, it's easier to um, cordon themselves off from it and feel, feel like it's different because the experience isn't there. Right. Right. And it, it certainly can be a considered a more cowardly 
way to approach life if you are always kind of you know hiding in your home and and trying to curse people and you know you're just doing it from the shadows uh it probably speaks a little bit about your your character man nietzsche would definitely would definitely have to agree with that the man of presentimon is the man who hides in the shadows mm -hmm. but the, the other question is this we're talking about cowardice how many spirits are there out there who actually respect cowardice would you like a hint on that the answer is none. I was going to say, you have a point there, but um, I don't know that it's a point that people want to hear. I, I don't know that people want to hear any uh, feedback that is going to be even a remote condemnation of the sort of um, obsessive desire for power. And uh, again, like strange lack of accountability mixed with a desire to be the uh, judge, jury, and executioner of the social conscience. You know, it, it's problematic in today's occult world. And unfortunately, many of the people who have this attitude or who, or who uh, you know, take these actions are probably extremely uh, weak magicians. You don't see me nodding, do you? Uh, <laughs> but you see so i mean go ahead i'm sorry I was, i'm just saying so i mean like it probably doesn't even matter because they're not really able to create the effects that that they want to with their you know political hoodoo and things like that uh however it's still it still represents a uh, wrong view from a buddhist perspective and um you know, I think that that wrong view can create ripples in a person's practical personal life, not just in their magical life. And I, I just think we need to think a lot about these kinds of things and and reflect on reflect on all of it carefully. Um, so we touched on the saints a little bit earlier, but I would like to talk at least a, a little more about the magic of the saints. Okay. Well, I'm, I want to backtrack a little bit because what you mentioned about unpopular opinion and the zeitgeist of the culture at the current time. Yeah. My question is why should we pander to that zeitgeist? Exactly. I, I mean, right. And this is from 13 years in ministry. You learn the preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. A, a lot of these people would say the same thing. They parrot that with, with their social conscience, as you put it, but they don't want it to apply to them. Well, maybe if it did apply to them, maybe if they realize it applied to them and if they would self-correct, I'm not trying to condemn everybody here. Please don't get me wrong. But this applies widely enough that if they would actually give consideration to these things, if they would self-correct, Perhaps they would get better results. Perhaps things would work better. Perhaps instead of pandering or parroting or circle jerking, as we see in the culture so much, there'd be actual improvement and we could return to actual occultism rather than the sideshow LARPing that we've had lately. There's been a lot of that. It's true. Um, now, uh, I feel like we could talk about that for an entire episode, but I do want to try to um touch on a couple more things and i I've, i think the magic of the saints is really interesting and it seems to me that the 
the saints themselves are something that that don't it doesn't fit into one easy box i mean if you look at saints you certainly have you have historical personalities who did live and were devout people and did die and were canonized due to wonder working miracles uh devotion charity and then on the other hand it's undeniable that there are also saints who were converted by the early church from earlier uh local deities of different peoples and so um yet you know they now operate those beings now operate within the paradigm of catholicism and can be called it can be called and will respond as Christian or Catholic saints. So it's there is a sort of continuity between the pre-Christian and Christian forms of these of these beings, where at the same time they're existing or coexisting, I would say maybe, with human beings that were devo- devotees of the Christian tradition who became, you know, uh, who became beatified as saints so i'm just wondering like number one your ideas about what i just said but also number two then when we get into the technique of it uh how does one engage the saints how does one work with the saints um and do you have a story of your own okay okay that that's a that's a few different things there so i'm going to try to break it down one by one okay Okay, now the idea of pagan deities who became canonized as saints, I'm not. I'm actually not familiar with one example of, now folk saints, you'll have that, but with actual saints in the catalog, I'm not familiar with so much as one example of that actually happening. Okay. So that's, okay, so that could be a subject for, for another time. But yeah, with folk saints, you have to find that pretty often, but we have to get into the the folk tier and the elite tiers of religion in order to dissect that properly because each all religions have different tiers okay but as far as the whole working with them and it is possible to call on entities from outside the catholic paradigm it is possible for a catholic magician to do that it is possible to converse with them i do have an, i do have an experience with that that it's actually very personal so i really don't want to get into detail about that now just that i do have the experience that's how i know it's possible but the um i think the big thing to everything you're saying is that it's very human that we have these modalities is because the modalities are themselves very human human beings have always had this drive to call upon their relatives, their, their deities, the spirits that serve their deities, their relatives, and so on. Humans have always had that. Even in the most fundamentalist Protestant cult, where they say, we don't pray to dead people. We don't have saints. We don't pray to dead people. You can still hear their members saying things like, I can feel my dad watching over me, and stuff like that. So it's very human. And there is no way to escape it. I think that the more somebody attempts to escape it, the more somebody's going to fall right back into it because some urges of humanity cannot be repressed. Okay, that, that long preamble being said, modalities of approaching the saints is as diverse as there are saints as the diverse as there are humans. Like I fielded questions like, 
what color should I use for St. Joseph or what planet should I assign to St. So-and-so? Well, the saints have, are pretty much the embodiment of all, each saint is the embodiment of all the planets, just as we ourselves are. So that doesn't really work. As for what color, what you find in the book may not be that saint's favorite color. Form a relationship with the saint, ask them their favorite color. And this is where we get into the modality. Sorry I took so long to get here. But the main thing, just like I said with ancestors, it's start by forming a relationship. Now, some saints will dispense with the relationship question altogether. Other saints will want you to form a relationship with them. That's, form a relationship. that's a good Sorry? point. That's a good point right there. Yeah. Well, it goes back to, do you ask a stranger for free stuff? It's pretty much what it goes back to. And that's pretty much my modality for working with all spirits, whether they be angelic, dead human, or anything else for that matter. And there are many more orders of spirits than just angel, dead human, or demon, which is the prevailing Catholic opinion on the subject. I'm getting sidetracked here by myself. I do that often. The, um, the modality is you get to know, you form a relationship with the saint. You form a relationship, and you find out what works best when talking to them. And when you start this out, just start by offering them, offering them a glass of water. Say, that's a, it's a, that's a pretty standard way to go. Just offer a glass of water in front of an image if you have one. If you don't, then just put a glass of water, put a glass of water on a table with nothing else on it. And just say to them every day, dear Saint so-and-so, receive, receive this gift of water. Be it unto thee coolness and refreshment. May we become friends through Christ our Lord. Amen. Just something very simple like that every day for a few weeks. Then, after maybe about, about three weeks, three weeks seems to be an, 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 important, an important period, especially in terms of human psychology. It takes three weeks for, according to Maxwell Maltz and his psycho-cybernetics, it takes the human subconscious three weeks to get used to things and three weeks to adapt to things, and three weeks for changes actually to take effect. So I'm going to go with three weeks because the saint is a human too. They have a subconscious too, just like we do. So after three weeks of talking, keep offering. Just refill the water when it gets too low. Preferably, preferably not tap water, but use some kind of pure water or spring water, something like that. And after three weeks, start meditating. Meditate on the saint's name. Try pathworking a meeting with the saint. At first, just like before, it's going to feel like it's all happening in your head. Eventually, you're going to break through. You've got to break through your subconscious and break through to making that actual connection. Keep at it until you make the connection. When you make the connection, just talk. Talk with the saint. Find out what are they into? What's their thing? What's the best way for them to help you? What are the limits that they have when it comes to helping you? Do they want to be friends or do they want their relationship to be strictly business? Find out these things. Get to know them. Actually get to know them and sincerely want to get to know them. Do this for the right reasons. And when you form the relationship, after you form the relationship, that's when you can start asking for stuff. But even then, don't do it all the time. Keep it rare. Like, for example, in social media, advertising has like an 80-20 rule. 80% content that is not self-promotion, 20% content that is self-promotion. The 80-20 rule is a good rule to follow. 
80% just talking, being friends, getting to know each other, 20% asking for stuff. And so, and always be thankful, always have an attitude of gratitude afterwards and while the request is being fulfilled. That's the, um, that's more or less my process when it comes to working with saints. I think that's really solid advice. Thank you for that. And, uh, you know, I, I can't help but think if there were more priests out there um, speaking about these topics as openly as you do, you know, maybe they would be filling the pews a little bit more. Um, it, it's just a thought um, because this, this all falls within the realm of acceptable Catholicism, like we've been saying. <clears throat> um, it's just been so downplayed. How can people keep up with what you're doing? What are, what are you doing right now? Um, what have you done that people can kind of follow up with? You've done, you've written a few books. Let's, let's talk about those things. Okay. Well, my first, my first book is the magic of Catholicism. It's actually, a, it's actually like a 90% rewrite of occult Catholicism, real magic for devout Catholics that I dropped years and years and years ago. Okay. The magic of Catholicism, it, it outlines the general principles of Catholicism as a magical practice. It goes through the sacraments. It goes through the sacramentals. It goes through prayer novenas and what, and what you can do with forming your own practice. That's the first one. Everything from there has pretty much been pretty much been enlarging principles. I laid down there, giving it towards um, ritual magic for conservative Christians, which is a bit more ecumenical. There is a book, Christian Candle Magic, which gets into candle burning procedures and things like that based on said principles. Though so I've actually learned a few things from experimentation that could be like a whole no- a whole other episode. Let's see, I've, ta- I've written on the rosary. I've got We Pray the Rosary, which was the, an actual guidebook that I'd written for group rosary devotion when I was in okay. exoteric ministry and how to pray the rosary and get results, obviously. So I've, re- I've written a lot of books. My most recent one is a-, a Handbook of Exorcism and Deliverance, which I dropped last November. Okay, how do you get a hold of me? I have My website is favmapub.com. Okay, that's where I keep my blog. That's where you can find my books. You can find classes I've done. I link to interviews that I've done there as well. The last Tuesday of every month, either the fourth or last Tuesday of every month, I do, I do a class over a given subject. Like this past Tuesday, I did a class on our guardian angels. The month before, I did the rosary, the magic of the rosary. And this coming month, I'm not really sure what topic. I'm debating whether to... Um, I'm debating whether to maybe do Benedictoria 101 or maybe do something, maybe do like an advanced version of a class that I've done before, just take it up to the next level. I'm not sure yet. So I do that. And I've currently got, I'm juggling back and forth between like three different books I'm currently writing. Right, two are novels. One's The Rosary and the Ring. It's a, it's a, it's a novelization of an actual set of path workings I did in 1998 generally for the wrong reasons and why an exploration of what really ended up happening. There was the immediate result was pretty bad, but the long-term result was really good. And so get, getting into all that, there's another novel I'm, I'm, I'm like nine chapters into. Um, it's a very, very, very fictitious account that's loosely based on a case I did in 2006. And there's, 
and I'm doing like a DLC to the exorcism book. I'm describing as a DLC because while the exorcism book was about the mechanics of exorcism and the things you need to look out for and what to do when you're in the field, this is going to be translations of, histo of historic rites, both Catholic exorcism rites, whether official, historical, or condemned. Hmm. So this is kind of like an add-on that can go that could be used in tandem with the exorcism book. Interesting. And people can follow you on Facebook as well as you have a few Facebook groups. Uh, yes, yes, I do. There, yeah, I can be found on Facebook under my pen name Agostino Tamatorgo. The um, okay, Facebook groups. There are two that I run. There's Catholic and Orthodox Catholicism. That I mean, I'm sorry, Catholic and Orthodox occultism which I let almost nobody into because I vet people for, for that group. And it's because I vet people because I'm obsessed with the group being of high quality. It, the vetting tends to be biased towards people I know. So if I reject your request, it's not, it's not personal. It's that I wasn't able to get enough by looking for your, at your profile in order to get a feel for it. You'd be a good fit. But there is, there is another group, the Societas Christi, Catholic Theology, Mysticism, and Occultism. Okay, that, that, that group, that used to be the old Church of Ophiel group. It's long, long story short, comedy of errors happened since last June, but I've restored the group to its original purpose. It's a lot easier to get into there. So if you want to get into the Catholic and Orthodox Occultism group, start with the Societas Christi group. Send me a request. As long as you answer both questions with a yes, I'll let you in. The questions are, have you, have, you, have, you read the, have you read and understand the rules? And the second one is, do you promise to refrain from, ta from, from posting or discussing politics, social justice, and activism within the group? Perfect. I keep my groups apolitical. Perfect. Okay, so, yeah, so you do that, I'll let you in. And when I get to know you, then, then I'll be more likely to let you into the other group. So that's how to work the system. <laughs> very cool. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, thank you very much for all your insight, for your time. Um, I gained a lot. Um, I, I hope that the audience was able to see maybe Catholicism in a different way. If they had any uh, preconceptions, um, hopefully you, you changed some of the, the negative ones. So we just wanted to thank you, uh, Father for coming on here to share uh, the paradigm to help people orient themselves and understand the validity and the sacredness and the, the continuing vi vitality of this tradition. I think, I think for a lot of people coming back to home, coming back home, you could say even to, to Catholicism, which is really, kind of a part of the hardware of most people in the Western world. Uh, if you have ancestors that were Catholics going, you know, unless, it, unless it's, you know, just a little bit, but most people have several, many generations of uh, ancestral Catholics. And what that means is uh, as we know, what we know from depth psychology that the, the experiences of our ancestors is, you know, interwoven with the unconscious, our, our unconscious mind. And so for people in the West, Catholicism, it cannot be escaped. It has to be reckoned with. It has to be accepted and understood. 
because there is a tremendous amount of uh, psychic energy that still flows through this this structure, and it is a part of our of our collective mind as uh, as people in Western culture. Um, it's I would say maybe more so for European Americans and Europeans, um, but it, you know, uh, no matter what your cultural background is, if you live in the West, it's a major part of it. And by reckoning with it in a positive way and integrating, uh, integrating the uh, value from that, I think that a greater even psychological integration can result. Uh, you don't have to become a you know society of Saint Pius the Tenth, you know sycophant. You but but sort of reconciling with a tradition that's been part of so many generations of our culture will surely create some healing within your soul and psyche. That's at least my opinion. Thank you very much for having me on, Janice, Dominic. I really appreciate this. Yeah, we, we're big fans of what you have to say, and we really value what you're doing out there. There's no one else that is saying what you're saying. There's no one else with your voice. Uh, it's really special and really important, and we support that. My, my thank you. I will say there's nothing I'm saying that isn't in old theology textbooks. I mean, it's there. It's just like people have hidden it from themselves. So who knows? Hopefully, hopefully more people will be inspired. Yep. Thank you for doing your part. All right. And again, thanks for having me on. All right. So that wraps up our interview with brother Agostino Talmaturgo, a delightful guest, intelligent, witty, funny, and erudite. I think he definitely was one of the most I mean, I don't know what, I mean, he blows my mind with the level of knowledge that he has. I feel like I'm almost talking to a polymath when I'm discussing things with him. I was, I was really just sort of, my breath was taken away by the depth and breadth of his knowledge. Um, But I really enjoyed this. And for me, I think the most valuable takeaway from it was the fact that his perspective is interesting because his his it seems as though his approach is to try and call attention to the fact that Catholicism is inherently esoteric, that it is naturally esoteric, that Catholicism in itself is 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 saturated with esotericism, it's part of its marrow and its bones, and it really almost a lot of it is just a shift of perception that will permit you to see see what is already right in front of you in a new light. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree 100%. I, I really like uh, Father uh, Tamaturgo because you know, I, I think if we took him back in time in a time machine back to the Middle Ages, he wouldn't be all that unique. Uh, I think the way he looks at things nowadays was probably fairly normal uh, a few centuries ago. <clears throat> and um, it's interesting that there's so few, if any, uh, people out there, at least as vocal as, as Father, um, out, out there talking about uh, kind of the, the bones of the Catholic uh, faith. 
like he does because the mysticism and the esotericism like you were saying is just so deeply ingrained um so i i really enjoy his perspective i'm glad he's out there because yeah there's not i I can't find anyone else out there who's able to articulate things um with such depth and uh expertise and you can tell that he is also very uh, deeply mystical personally i'm i'm guessing it sounds like that to me he's got a, a a very strong practice it seems and um he's been doing it for decades so that would make sense yeah and um you know he's really in keeping with he's in keeping with good company i mean if you look at albertus magnus thomas aquinas Trithemius. There's a long tradition of Catholic magicians. And uh, it's not hard to see why, because when you examine the body of Catholic practice and theology, there's a, there's a continuity there and it, it, it goes backwards and it went forward into the future to a certain point. And prior, I think to, uh, Really, the two the two things, and we touched on this in the interview, but the two things that maybe started to make that we started to see changes were the Protestant Reformation, and then later the Enlightenment, so-called Enlightenment, which I think produced Vatican II, which is a great tragedy for really the entire Catholic world. Um, but so I'm I think that in the return to a inherently magical esoteric catholicism i think we're coming that's really a return to genuine catholicism you know that's a return to the virtues of the catholic faith as it was as it was originally perhaps as opposed to what it have what it has become in latter times and yeah i can understand why people would be hesitant to um really involve themselves uh with catholicism considering all of the uh recent uh with all the tragic developments um you know it's obvious if anyone's looked at the news or or whatnot i can understand why people would be hesitant so i think um it's okay though to uh, explore this Um, I, i think you can acknowledge those uh tragic events but also um see the good that's there so anyway um well and i think that there's time for with people leaving the church in record numbers you know churches are being closed everywhere um i think this is the perfect time for a kind of radical reappraisal and instead of looking at things through the eyes of the crowd looking at things from a more objective perspective like where you know, let's not throw out everything. Let's not throw the baby with the bathwater out. Let's take a let's take a look at what is meaningful in this tradition. What is valuable in this tradition? What is what is potent? What is effective? And you know, what of that is worth salvaging and and keeping? I think there's a lot there that still is. Yeah, totally. And I and I do think there is a little bit of a revival happening. Uh, folk catholicism has become kind of cool in the culture over the past few years so i I think there is a little bit of a comeback happening in these 
different areas, um, which is good. Um, the Solomonic people and the Grimoire people have sure uh, kind of brought it out a little bit into the more mainstream occult world. Um, so having said all that, I would definitely look into Father Spadafora's uh, stuff. His YouTube channel is great. He's got a lot of videos on there. Uh, I would also check out his book. I would highly recommend the uh, book on the rosary, how to uh, pray the rosary and get results, I think is the title. I've been praying the rosary now almost uh, pretty much every day for the past few weeks, and uh, it's a powerful tool. I would, I would recommend kind of uh, giving it a try. And um, yeah, and we, we definitely appreciated him coming on. And I think his voice is really unique. He's kind of like crying in the wilderness here. And uh, I hope that people hear him because he, he has a really important message. And it is people like him that are going to actually revitalize this tradition and keep it alive. It, it is rather than, I think, the conventional people I think it is people like Father Spadafore that are going to keep Catholicism alive and vital. Um, and with that said, we're going to begin our new segment uh, with a brief book review. I thought since our title of our show is The Magician and the Fool, what better uh, book to review than a book on the an archetypal trickster figure who is a bit of a magician and a bit of a fool in a way the fool in the sense of the trickster the book i am reviewing is prometheus archetypal image of human existence by carl Carigny. hopefully most of our listeners are familiar with carl Carigny. he's he wrote many excellent books on um on mythology uh, his his book on Hermes is fantastic, um, and this book on Prometheus follows suit. He was part of the Ballingen Circle, which also included um, Henry Corbin, Carl Jung, and um, these were some of the greatest minds of a of a generation coming together. This book is a pretty comprehensive exploration of Prometheus. Uh, he examines Hesiod examines the extant fragments which discuss Prometheus. He, of course, examines Aeschylus. And interestingly, he also um, explores Goethe's uh, view and take on Prometheus. Um, I learned some interesting things in this book. For instance, the, uh, the motif that most people in today's time are familiar with which is Prometheus being bound to a rock for stealing fire, is actually um, of a bit later of a date than um, the, the uh, it's a later interpolation, a later addition to the Prometheus story. Um, originally, Prometheus was associated with teaching mankind sacrifice to the gods and instituting the art of sacrifice, which is an interesting dovetail with Hermes, actually. Uh, as is the gift of fire, which is also in some stories attributed to Hermes. Uh, Prometheus also, um, in some renditions, is actually depicted as bound to a cross instead of a rock. This certainly, as a 
Gnostic um, excited my the curiosity of my intellect, as well as um, other things I found in here, such as Prometheus's love for Minerva or Athena. Apparently, Prometheus uh, was very much in love with her, and in some accounts was present at her birth, and was the one who cleaved open the uh, mind of Zeus so that she could spring forth. This is all highly potent mythic material that's covered in this book. I strongly recommend it to anyone with an interest in the subject of uh, Greek myth, uh, sacrifice, the trickster figure, um, as well as Orphic myth, because there are areas in here that certainly dovetail with uh, Orphism. Karini also explores... um, you know, linguistic elements. He goes into uh, Aeschylus quite a bit, including exploring what may, what the lost plays of Aeschylus uh, regarding Prometheus may have been about. And then at the end of the book, there's a series of plates which show uh, different depictions on pottery, on sarcophagi of Prometheus, and frequently they show him creating mankind from clay. So this is our first book review, and with our first book review, I definitely wanted to do it with the, uh, on a book that I personally felt grateful for having read, and the book is about a figure that I have a personal reverence for. So with that, I recommend it. I encourage anyone who is interested in the subjects we explore in our podcast to consider acquiring this text. I think it will enrich you and help you to understand not only Prometheus and his nature, but also the ancient Greek worldview. And any of the works of Carl Kerenyi will really start to bring you into the the worldview. I mean, here we have Prometheus and Hermes. He explores Prometheus' relationship with Hephaestus and Hera, um, with Zeus and the mind of Zeus, with the Kabiri. Uh, It's very interesting, and it will expand your understanding of the relationships between the Olympians as well. With that said, I'm going to conclude the book review. And unless you have anything further to add, Dominic, I think that's a wrap. Okay. Yeah, let's wrap it up. What uh, What's the name of the book again? Prometheus, Archetypal hu- Image of Human Existence by Carl Kerenyi. Okay. Thank you for doing that. Um, and we'll put a link, probably stick a link in somewhere um, <clears throat> on the website associated with this episode. Okay, you can find us on that website, themagicianandthefool.podbean.com. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, uh, Stitcher, iTunes, etc. And we also have a new dedicated uh, email. It is synthemata at gmail.com, S-U-N-T-H-E-M-A-T-A at gmail.com. And we really wanted to have uh, an email address that was you know, the magician and the fool, magician, fool, fool, magician, something, but uh, everything was taken. So that's what we ended up with. So feel free to uh, contact us via the email. Um, We're always open to comments, criticisms, uh, opinions, ideas. And if you're interested in us reviewing um, any a book or even music, uh, if, as long as it's within the scope of 
the interest of the show. We are always open to that, as well as uh, art, any any art that is related to um, magic, mysticism, esotericism, theurgy, uh, archetypal psychology, mythology. We're always interested in those subjects as well. Yes. On that note, thank you for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Sorry.